All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 11. Luke 11. Verses 37 to the end of the chapter, verse 54 this evening, a larger chunk of Scripture. I'm excited to be moving a little bit faster. I feel like oh, I got a little bit bogged down for a while, both in Ecclesiastes and Luke, and now we, we've, we've picked up the pace a little bit, and uh, we, we're covering some broader portions, moving a little bit more again. The title of the message, Religious Evil, it's going to somewhat um, play off of what we'll be talking about next week. It will be, uh, I will be preaching both Sunday morning and Sunday evening, just the way it all played out in Luke. Uh, of course, they'll both be on the uh, screen, as I won't be here, but... Um, I'll be preaching both morning and evening in Luke, uh, and just kind of continuing through into Luke 12. It's often noted among we who are born-again believers, and rightfully so, that we are not as much in a religion as we are in a relationship. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say that before, that what we have is not a religion, we have a relationship with God. The, the idea there, what is a, being attempted... To, to be expressed there, is that a religion is distinct, though interrelated, with the relationship that we have with God the Father through the Son. That, that a religion is not necessarily what we do, uh, or, or what we serve, but it's what we do. Religion is a good thing, it's a healthy thing, it's a right thing. But it's not designed by God to be the essence of who we are. It's designed by God to be a framework within which our relationship with God operates. Religion is intended to guide us into obedience, to guide us into reverence, to guide us into worship. But it's intended, religion is intended to be motivated, to be driven by a pre-existing relationship that we have with God by grace through faith. And this is an important distinction. Now, while we can talk about our religion and such, it is, in fact, an important distinction that we serve a living God and we have a relationship with that God that is distinct from the religious elements that we might partake in in any given week. And why this is can be important for us to highlight, important for us to, to emphasize, is because for the majority of the world... Rather than seeing religion as a framework within which they exercise a genuine love for God and a relationship with God, most in the world have made their religion the essence of their relationship with God so that they judge their position before God, they judge God's view of them within the context of their religious zeal and obedience. For most... Their relationship with God is an outworking of religious devotion. So if you ask them about their relationship with God, it will be termed entirely within the context of the religious things that they do. To those who understand what the scriptures teach us, however, our religious devotion, the things that we do, is an outworking of our relationship with God. And so it is that we understand that religion in itself is not wrong. But we also need to understand that religion can be wrong. Religion can bring evil. Religion can be used unto evil ends. When people talk about, when, when, when they're arguing politics or whatever it might be, and they, they say religion is, is responsible for much of the world's harm, it's true. That much of the world's harm can be laid at the feet of people's religious zeal. Now, not biblical zeal, but religious zeal. Men oftentimes use religion as a pretext for doing harmful and wicked things. But what we need to understand even more is that the greatest of the evils of misguided religion is not when men use religion. Religion as the pretext to do harm. But rather, the greatest of these evils is when religion is used to misrepresent spiritual truths, to bring about false doctrine, and so draw men further away from the truths of salvation by grace through faith. This week, 
we're going to consider religion used for evil. And we're going to do so through Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders in Israel. And we're going to attempt to cover, as I mentioned, a pretty large portion of Scripture. So let's dig in. I told you there in Luke 11, beginning in verse 37, let's read verses 37 and 38 together. The Bible says this, And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now we're introduced to the setting here. Jesus, a certain Pharisee has asked to Jesus to dine with him. This was not unusual. There are several instances in the New Testament where individual Pharisees invited Jesus for one reason or another to have a meal with him. Now in Hebrew culture, sharing a meal with a person was a form of fellowship. It was not something that you would do just for anybody. If you invited someone to a meal, it was a form of fellowship. And so these invitations do reflect at the very least that this Pharisee had a respect for Jesus. He was willing to engage with him, to sup with him though not always necessarily to believe in his identity or his message. This is why the most intimate form of fellowship we have among one another is the Lord's table. It is a fellowship around the table. It's the same, similar idea. So, so this Pharisee was willing to speak with Jesus, was willing to fellowship with Jesus, and this is a good thing. It doesn't mean he accepted his identity. It didn't mean he accepted his message. But this is a good thing. It's, it's, it means that the Pharisee was willing to engage with Jesus. It probably means he was not necessarily one of the Pharisees who implicitly felt like Jesus was working for Beelzebub, right? Because you wouldn't invite a man who was eating with you. Uh, uh, you wouldn't invite a man to eat with you if you thought he was in league with the devil and his minions. So Jesus uh, does so. And as Jesus... Comes, he comes into the man's house, and the Bible says that he sat down to meet. And the Pharisee marveled at this. We might even consider it kind of a recoil. He was shocked. He was amazed. Because Jesus did not first wash his hands before sitting down. In the rabbinical schools, various ceremonies had been erected. And these ceremonies were put in place in order to comply with the cleanliness expectations of the Levitical law. Now, in the Levitical law, there is no expectation that before a meal, the Jews would wash their hands. But there was an expectation that before going to do sacrifices or before going to go into the tabernacle or the temple, that the priests would have to wash, right? They'd have to wash, they'd have to change their garments, these sorts of things. There were various times in which ceremonial, ceremonial hand washing was done. And so the rabbinical tradition had amplified these ideals in the biblical law to where they expected that before any meal, you would wash your hands before you eat. Now, it's a good custom. It's one that we make our children partake in. It's a wise thing to wash your hands before you eat. This is, a, this is not a bad thing. But it's not something that's going to make or break my relationship with God. And this Pharisee recoiled at this breach of custom, which to him had become far more than just a custom. It had become an element of his religious zeal. That being said, not everyone who felt such a reaction is by, necess- is, is by necessity doing wrong or out of balance. We'll discover what it was specifically about this reaction that Jesus had, uh, that Jesus was concerned with. It's not necessarily that the Pharisee was concerned that Jesus didn't wash his hands. It's not so much what he was concerned with as much as it was what the Pharisees weren't concerned with that caused Jesus to rebuke them. So we continue in verses 38 and 39 and we read this. The Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? Jesus tells the Pharisee that the problem is not necessarily that he wants washed hands, but that the external rituals of their religious devotion were so much more important to the Pharisees than their internal rituals of pleasing God. Jesus describes them as having made clean the outside of the cup and the plate, while the inward part was filthy, was full of wickedness, was full of ravening, was full of dirt, 
was full of grime. Now, I have a cup on any given week, and I don't know necessarily how often this cup gets cleaned, but that cup is clean on the inside. It's got water in it. That water is clear. I can see the bottom of the cup. That's pretty important. The sides are clean. All of those things are good. Now, the outside of the cup has some smudges, has some fingerprints on it. I've been holding it. I've been touching it. Uh, My daughter's the one that got it for me this morning. So many hands have touched it today. The outside of the cup is not necessarily all that clean. But I'm not all that concerned about the outside of the cup. I'm more concerned about the inside of the cup. Now, if the outside of the cup was completely caked with dirt, I might have a problem with that as well. But the inside of the cup is really what matters, right? The inside of the cup is the part I'm going to be drinking out of. That's the part that makes the most difference. And this is where the important distinction comes in. The problem is not necessarily that the Pharisee did not like that Jesus breached the custom of washing his hands before the meal. The problem was that the Pharisee recoiled at Jesus not washing his hands before the meal, but not at the money changers in the temple. The problem is that this Pharisee recoiled at Jesus not washing his hands before a meal, but didn't necessarily have a problem with self-righteous prayers of his comrades that Jesus has already rebuked them for, or forgiving their alms to be seen of men, or, for that matter, calling Jesus a worker of Beelzebub. The problem is that this Pharisee was so repulsed by Jesus not washing his hands, but was not repulsed by the inward wickedness of the Pharisaic order. The problem was that the Pharisees judged men's righteousness more by whether or not the outside of the cup was clean than the inside. That the Pharisees judged righteousness more by whether or not a man washed his hands before he ate than whether or not he reflected the word of God in his heart and in his actions. And in doing so, they showed themselves to be clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. And Jesus reasons... The God who made the outside made the inside also. So how can you say you're honoring God simply by cleaning up the outside when the inside is filthy? How can you say that that's pleasing to God? How can you say you're doing what you're supposed to be doing because the outside of the cup is clean when the inside is filthy? By the way, the inside is the part that really matters, right? When I'm drinking out of a cup or when I'm eating a plate, it's the inside that really matters, practically speaking. Does not a heart of wickedness and evil, which remains unseen by others, still profane and all-knowing God? Is not uncleanliness before God in our hearts just as valid, more so a problem than an outward failing? So Jesus continues in verse 41. But rather, oh, this isn't changing, my apologies. But rather, give alms of such things as ye have. And behold, all things are clean unto you. Jesus says, give to God the gift of consecrating yourself to him. Not just the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup. And if you give yourself to him, if you consecrate yourself to him, if you make the inside of the cup clean, do you know what else is going to be clean? The outside. Now that's not necessarily a one-to-one analogy. With a a normal cup, right? If you clean the inside of the cup, it doesn't automatically clean the outside as well. But in a life, from a spiritual perspective, if your inside is clean, do you know what's going to happen? The inside is going to move outside. It's going to happen. If the inside is clean, the outside will follow. It's going to happen. And so Jesus says, give alms of such things that you have. Give what you have to the Lord and behold, all things are clean unto you. This is reminiscent of what, G, what, what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. All things are lawful unto you, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful unto you, but all things do not edify. See, if, we're, if, if, if the inside is clean, then the outside things that we're going to do are going to be clean. Because we're motivated by a heart of love for the Lord to do what we do or not to do what we don't do. So Jesus then continues in verses 42 to 44. He says, but woe unto you, Pharisees. For ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. 
Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Jesus gives his woes. We've talked about the woes a couple of times in Luke. We've seen them two times in Luke already. In Luke 6, uh, we saw woes to those who would seek their own wealth, the wealth of this world at the expense of the world to come. Woe unto them that are rich in this world at the expense of the world to come. In Luke 10, Jesus gave his woes against Bethsaida, against Chorazan, and against Capernaum. Because the thing, he says, if the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah and Nineveh, uh, not, not Nineveh, Sodom and Gomorrah, um, some other ones as well, no doubt, uh, that they would have, they, that they would have uh, repented in sackcloth and in ashes. And he says, but you have rejected. And so he gives these woes again. A woe in the scriptures was the idea of something which which is a it's a desolation it's a rebuke it's a sorrow it is uh, declaring sorrow upon a circumstance or a situation and he says woe expressions of grief or indignation is what a woe is he says woe because you as pharisees you tithe the very smallest of the herbs mint rue and all manner of herbs but you pass over god's judgment now we find here two herbs mentioned, mint and rue. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is recorded as citing mint, dill, and cumin. These do not contradict because Luke adds that all manner of herbs. The idea is that the Pharisees were so careful with the, the letter of the law that even as they grew herbs, if they, as they harvested those herbs, this was some of their increase, they would take a tenth of those herbs and they would sacrifice them unto the Lord. Even just their herbs. But at the same time, they ignored what Jesus calls here judgment and the love of God. What Jesus calls in Matthew 23, 23, the weightier matters of the law. In Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, God gave the nation of Israel a very concise statement of inward sacrifices that truly please the Lord. He wrote, he said this, Micah told the people this, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. What does God want from you? What does God want from you? He wants you to operate in justice, mercy, and humility. That's what God wants from you. This is what pleases God. And this does not mean that God does not want religion. This did not mean God did not want their sacrifices. But rather, that if they got all of those things right, all of those sacrifices right, if they cleaned up the outside of the cup but not the inside, they had fallen short. On the contrary, if you clean up the inside of the cup, do you know what's going to come naturally to you? The outside stuff. But see, the problem with people is that the outside of the cup is tangible, it's accessible, and it's much easier to clean than the inside of a cup. If you've ever cleaned baby bottles, you'll find that the outside is a whole lot easier to clean than the inside. They're thin, they're small, you have to get a little something in there, you have to rag and fingers, especially for big man hands, it's just not, not easy to do. The outside of the cup is much easier to clean. So what do you do? You clean the outside of the cup and then you run some hot water on the inside and say, that's ah, good, right? But that doesn't work because the inside of the cup is what matters, especially with a baby bottle, right? It's important. See, the problem is that cleaning the inside of a cup is harder than cleaning the outside of a cup. Isn't it harder for you to do things properly motivated for God for all the right reasons with a heart of love for the Lord than it is just for you to put a suit and a tie on on a Sunday and go and look good? 
Isn't it more difficult for you to be properly motivated to read your Bible in the morning out of a love for God than just to check off the list a few times a week on something and rush through it real quick so that you can show everybody that you checked off your list? It's far easier to clean the outside of the cup than it is to clean the inside of a cup, isn't it? But if we miss the inside of the cup, we've missed it. We've missed it. And this was the very trap that the Pharisees had fallen into. They had erected an entire system of religious devotion that could operate completely outside of the need to love God and His Word. It could operate completely within the guidelines of self-righteousness and pride without any contradiction in their actions. They had established a system that held men accountable only to external conformity and not to any cleanliness of the inside of the cup. Not to any inward love for God and for His Word. And notice that Jesus makes this very point that it was not wrong for them to tithe of the very smallest of their herbs. This was not a wrong thing. He says that they should have done these things. These ought ye to have done. But not to leave the others undone. It's not wrong that they tithe, only rather that they judged their tithe as a sufficient measure of their love for God that they didn't have to actually do justice, love, mercy, or walk humbly with their God. So Jesus calls them first out for their pride. For on account of their careful adherence to external customs, they were praised and exalted in the synagogues and in the markets. They got the upper seats in, 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 the, in the feasts. They were praised and greeted in the markets. Oh, there they are. There are the scribes. There are the Pharisees. There are our teachers. There are our leaders. There are our, our role models. And that became their goal. Be the one who receives the praise. That's pride. That's self-righteousness. They were proud. And by the way, pride is one of those great sins of which God's word tells us God hates. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. But what was it that troubled this Pharisee? This Pharisee was not troubled by, the, by his comrades seeking the upper seats in the synagogues. This Pharisee was not troubled by their comrades seeking the greetings. This Pharisee was not troubled by his comrades looking for praise as they gave of their, of their, their wealth and as they tithed of their mint and anise and cumin. What this Pharisee was greatly troubled with is that Jesus was eating with unwashed hands. And that's that problem. This is what Jesus tells them in verse 44. He says, you're hypocrites. You are as graves which appear not. And the men that walk over them are not aware of them. I love this illustration. He says they're like hidden graves. In order to understand this, we need to go back to Numbers chapter 19, verse 16. And in Numbers chapter 19, verse 16, we see this element of the law, right? The whole point of the Pharisees was don't break the law. Don't breach the law. Jesus says you're walking breaches of the law. He says in Numbers chapter 19, verse 16, And whosoever toucheth one that is slain with a sword in the open fields, or a dead body, or the bone of a man, or a grave shall be unclean seven days. So you are ceremonially unclean if you even so much as touch a grave, right? So you touch a grave, you touch a gravestone, you touch the place where someone's buried, you touch the mound, you walk over the mound, you're unclean for seven days. A man or woman who touched a dead body or even the mound of the grave is unclean ceremonially for seven days. Now here's the thing. Jesus describes these Pharisees as hidden graves. That just as a person might unwittingly, now, now, you know, not all graves are visible, right? You bury a person in the ground after a while, grass grows back. If you don't have a tombstone, if there's no mound, you don't see the grave. Who knows? We're, we're walking over dead bodies all the time for all we know. Because there's, there's, who knows, right? Who knows who's buried in your backyard? <laughs> Interesting thought. So, ho- hopefully it's not too shady, right? But the idea being, he says, you're like unmarked graves, People are interacting with you and you're making them unclean without them even knowing it. You're making them unclean. I I ate with unwashed hands, but just interacting with you Pharisees, just respecting you Pharisees, just listening to you and heeding your words and the way you operate 
is making them unclean before God. Jesus is effectively calling that the way the Pharisees are living as spiritual poison. Spiritual poison to the whole nation. That all who follow their leadership were led into hypocrisy and religious evil by following them. Unless we think Jesus couldn't be saying that, we'll find an even clearer statement toward the end of this chapter. He continues in verse 45, then answered one of the lawyers. So, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees have been under the microscope. And if this lawyer were smart, he would have just kept his mouth shut. But he didn't. And he said instead, Master, thus saying, thou reproachest us also. After all, we follow the Pharisees and the scribes, so you're reproaching us too. After all, we as well are leaders of the the Jews in the, the works of the law. After all, we believe these things too. So now you're reproaching not just the the Pharisees, but we the lawyers. The lawyer spoke up and he said, don't lock me in with them. I don't, why, why are you reproaching us as well? And Jesus says, okay, let's talk about the lawyers now. So he gives his woe to the lawyers. To be honest, you could have seen that coming. So he says in verse 46, woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be born and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allowed the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye built their sepulchres. Jesus lays into the lawyers now, those who were charged with reading and interpreting the law of God. These were the ones that read and interpreted the law of God. And he tells them that while they devoted themselves to burdening the nation of Israel with heavy expectations under the law. So they read the law and they would read these things about, about the cleansings of the priests when they go into the tabernacle. And then they would take that burden and say, and so should you wash before every meal. This is the law and the prophets. And Jesus says, you are heaping burdens upon the people that they don't need to bear, but you won't even touch that burden with one of your fingers. You're, it's, it's, it's like, it's like that, that, that boss that you can't respect because he's sitting there in the chair and he's saying, now go move this and now go do that. And he's actually standing right next to the thing that needs to be moved. And instead of just getting up and moving it, he tells you to get up and go move it. It's like that guy. You just can't respect him because he's having you bear all the burdens, but he's not lifting a finger. There's no respect there. There's hypocrisy there. There's laziness there. He says, you are burdening these people with heavy and legalistic interpretations of the law. You are burdening them with a religious system that is weighing them down and causing them to feel constant guilt and shame and fear and and feel like they have to constantly be earning God's favor. While at the same time, you're a hypocrite. You don't keep any of it yourself. You're burdening them with spiritual demands and you don't even share in the burdens. You don't practice what you preach. You're a hypocrite. Jesus says they build the... And then he gives this other example. He says they built the sepulchers. That's a tomb. He says you build tombs unto the dead. And not just any dead, but for the prophets that your fathers killed. While at the same time, living the same lifestyle as your fathers. Teaching the same lessons as your fathers. Does it not reveal deep hypocrisy for them to revere the teachings and the traditions and the interpretations of their fathers while simultaneously building sepulchers to the prophets that their fathers had killed, therefore admitting that their fathers had rejected the warnings and teachings of God's prophets? See, here's the thing. In the day that the fathers killed the prophets, they killed the prophets because they said, you're not of God, right? You're not of God, so we're going to persecute you. Jeremiah was thrown into a pit. He was, uh, he, he was fed bread and water. All of these things happened to Jeremiah because the king said, you are not speaking for the Lord. All of these prophets were persecuted. All of the prophets were killed that were killed because they were rejected by Israel as having not been a, a, a true representation of the Lord. Well, then the lawyers come along in Jesus' day and they say, we were wrong. Our fathers were wrong about that. These were men of God. So they built them tombs to memorialize them. And almost, we might say, as reparations. The, the We're going to build a tomb today in reparations for what our fathers did to them. But Jesus says, here's the problem with this. You're building tombs to them in reparations, admitting that they were right. But you're still conducting the traditions that deny their very teachings. 
You've cleaned up the outside of the cup, but you never cleaned up the inside of the cup. You'll, you'll make a sepulcher and a memorial to Micah. But Micah 6, 6 through 8 is still foreign to you. You'll make a sepulcher for Hosea. But Hosea 6, 6 is still foreign to you. You'll make a sepulcher for, for, for Isaiah. But you completely missed out on what Isaiah was warning against in Isaiah 1. All of these times where the prophet said, I don't want your, your, your sacrifices. I want your heart. And they were persecuted and they were killed and they were beaten. And so they make memorials to them and say these were God's prophets while simultaneously still holding on to the traditions and the, the, the thought processes and the errors of their fathers who killed them. Jesus said this is a contradiction. They have been led by the paths of their fathers into the same misdeeds of their fathers. They've rejected Jesus and by proxy, they've rejected the prophets of God while honoring the prophets of God. Attempting to. They've made clean the outside of the cup while the inside of the cup is filthy. So Jesus continues in verses 49 and 50. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them they shall slay and persecute that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. Jesus then quotes the wisdom of God. We do not have a particular, as far as I could find, there is no direct passage of Scripture that Jesus is actually quoting here, as much as it is a divine philosophy, that to God's wayward people, God has in every generation faithfully sent men to call them back from error. And while God's commission upon these men is genuine, so that if they, if, if the people that they're preaching to would repent, God would show them mercy, these prophets actually served a secondary purpose as well. They were sent to these people to preach to them the mercy of God, and if they had repented, they would get that mercy. But they were also sent to these people, these prophets were, so that on the day of judgment, the prophets of their generation would stand and be witnesses against them that they had rejected the word of the Lord. So that no one could say, God, you never told me. God could then trot out the prophets and say, you killed that one, you killed that one, you beat that one, you silenced that one. What do you mean I never told you? That's a secondary purpose for the prophets. This is a secondary purpose for all proclaimers of every generation. First Peter tells us this is a secondary purpose of you sharing the gospel. Your first reason to share the gospel is to see people saved. Your secondary reason is that those who reject the gospel, when they stand before the throne, God, and they say, God, I never heard the gospel, they'll say, he went to your door. And he offered you a tract and he put one at the table that you served at the restaurant and he lived out the gospel every day in front of you at work and he invited you to church how many times? Don't tell me you never had a chance that God may be just, that God may be righteous, that God may be vindicated. So the prophets had this this function and God would oftentimes tell the prophets this. He told Isaiah this in Isaiah chapter 6. He said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and be con- and, and convert and be healed. Now, God's not saying there that they can't receive the gospel. What God's saying is, I'm going to send you, and they're going to weary of you, and you are going to, your, your message is going to serve to confirm them in their rebellion. They're not going to listen to you. Keep preaching, he says, as he continues that chapter, until there's no one left to preach to, until the cities are desolate and everyone's dead. Until that day, you just keep preaching. He would say a similar thing to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and then I'll jump to verse 7. And he said unto me, Son of man, go, get thee into the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. For thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of an hard language, but to the house of Israel." But the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Could you imagine being called to the mission field or being called to the pastorate? And God commissions you to go and you say, here am I, send me. And God says, okay, go. And by the way, 
I'm sending you to a place where they won't listen. I'm telling you before your ministry begins that, that, that your ministry is not going, no one's going to listen to you. Wow. That would be kind of tough, wouldn't it? That'd be a tough thing. But God had ordained Israel not as a revivalist. Uh, excuse me, Ezekiel. God had ordained Ezekiel not to be a revivalist. God had ordained Ezekiel to be a watchman. We find this in verses 17 and 18. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman under the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. And he goes on to say, but if you warn them, then the blood's not on your hand. He says, I didn't send you to win them, I sent you to warn them. Your duty is not to win them, your duty is to warn them. Now you have a prophet like Jonah. We talked about Jonah. Jonah was a reluctant prophet, and he had perhaps one of the greatest revivals that we can read about in the Bible. 120 little children, not to mention the rest of the city. That's a, that's a big revival. And then you have the willing prophets like Ezekiel, who had to go through quite a bit. And God says, I'm not... Sending you to win them, I'm sending you to warn them so that on the day of judgment, you'll stand and witness against them. That's your job. In Acts 7, the deacon Stephen, full of faith and power, cried out to the leaders of Israel and he said this in verses 51 to 53. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did so do ye. That's exactly what Jesus is telling the lawyers today in this, in our passage, right? As your fathers have done, so do ye. You give lip service to the fathers, but you, you give, you give lip service to God, but just as your fathers killed the prophets, so too have you. Look what he says. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels. And have not kept it. God himself came down from Mount Sinai and spoke to you the law. And you've ignored it. Because of the traditions of your fathers. But then Jesus heightens this woe. He says, certainly the blood of the prophets would be required at the generation of those who slew them. But he says, this generation... Of this generation, the generation that is rejecting the word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, not our generation, but that generation in Luke 11. He says of that generation, it will not just be my blood that's required. It will be the blood of every prophet who has ever lived. Wow. Every pl- when, when, when those Pharisees, those Sadducees, and those lawyers stand before the almighty God, and the books are opened... And they say, God, did not we do all of these things in your name? Not only is Jesus, the judge, going to be speaking against them, but every single prophet, every single follower of God who had been martyred from that generation all the way to the beginning would stand and witness against them, Jesus says. What a terrifying thought. Jesus says, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. We all know of Abel, whom Cain slew. Abel was the first of God's martyrs, slain for his righteousness, slain for well-doing. Cain killed him because Abel did well and Cain did not. And Cain, rather than repent, wanted to remove the remembrance of his sin. So he killed the one who made him remember it, the one who brought him remembrance of his evil doing. Zecharias called in the Old Testament Zechariah, was the son of Jehoiada, the high priest. We find his account in 2 Chronicles chapters 21 through 23. We covered this story last year at the picnic at the Heinemann's house, so a few of you were there. Uh, you might recall this, this account. Jehoiada had hidden and raised King Joash from his infancy. Joash's great-grandfather was the good King Jehoshaphat. The good king, however, sought to create peace with the evil house of Ahab. He wanted to reunite the two monarchies by seeking peace with Ahab. A really bad idea. When the dirty's with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. 
So Jehoshaphat tried to make these alliances with Ahab. And it didn't work. One of the things he did, however, was he took Ahab and Jezebel's daughter and allowed her to marry his son. So now Jehoshaphat's son, um, Jehoram, reign, uh, marries Athaliah, who was Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. Jehoshaphat died and Jehoram began to reign, but his heart had been turned away from God by his wife. No surprise there. And he did great evil. So he died. And the Bible says his son Ahaziah became king, but his son was only king for one year. He was killed uh, by Jehu in, in north, northern Israel. When he died, the Bible says his mother, who was the evil daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, the woman Athaliah, usurped the throne. Which had never happened to that point in Judah. It happened quite a bit in Israel because Israel was functioning just like the pagan kings. But it never happened in, in, the north, in the southern tribes of Judah. But she usurped the throne and she killed all of her grandchildren to make sure none of them could become king. Talk about a hard-hearted woman. However, one of the grandchildren, the youngest, a man named Joash, who was just an infant at the time, was saved by the high priest, the priest Jehoiada. This priest protected Joash until he was seven years old, at which time they destroyed Athaliah and they restored the Davidic line to power in Jerusalem. Joash became king. And the Bible tells us that Joash was a very good king. He cleaned up Israel. He got rid of the high places. He was a good king until the day that his mentor died. When Jehoiada, his adopted father, died, the Bible says Joash stopped serving the Lord and went his own way and did what was right in his own eyes. And became rebellious. So God raised up a prophet. And the name of this prophet was Zechariah. But what was interesting about this prophet is that the prophet Zechariah was the former high priest Jehoiada's son. You know, the Jehoiada that had raised Joash. So effectively, God raised up Zechariah, who was the adopted brother, we might say, of the king to prophesy of the evil of the king himself. And we pick up the account in 2 Chronicles 24, verses 20 to 22, where the Bible says this, And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. And they conspired against him, And they stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died, he said, the Lord look upon it and require it. This particular incident became one of the deepest black spots in Israel's history. That the king killed the son of the man who had raised him and protected him from death. Remember, Athaliah was going to kill Joash. Jehoiada saved him, raised him, put him back on the throne, taught him right, then he died, and then Jehoash killed Jehoiada's son because he didn't want to serve the Lord. Because Joash didn't want to serve the Lord. This was a black mark in Israel's history and one that had persisted up until the time of Christ, which is why Christ used it here. And not only did they kill Zechariah at the behest of the king, but they killed him on tabernacle grounds, on temple grounds, excuse me, the temple at this point. They killed him between the altar and the temple. This would have been deeply, deeply evil. Reflected the incredible indifference of that generation to evil. And Jesus says, not only will Abel be required of you and every prophet since Abel, but even Zechariah, even that terrible blight, he's going to stand up on the day of judgment against you. Because you're just like Joash. That would have struck to the hearts of some folks. I hope. (laughs) I can imagine. You're just like Joash. You're just like that young man who scorned his adopted father who had saved his life and killed his adopted father's son when his adopted father's son called him back to serving the Lord. Jesus finishes his woe to them in verse 52. Woe unto you lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. 
Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. So he says, you are the interpreters of the law. If I may put it this way, woe unto you pastors who have the word of God and who know how to study it and don't teach it to your people. That's what he's saying here. You are the lawyers. You are the people that have the key to knowledge. You are the ones that know best what the law is saying. And not only did you not enter into that knowledge, not only have you rejected that knowledge, but then you have taken those who want to know that knowledge and you have guided them away with you. You said, here, come follow me as I give you knowledge and you lead them away from knowledge. You have the key and not only have you entered in, but you won't let anyone else use the key. And as with all the prophets prior, and men like Stephen later, their words of warning did not bring these leaders unto repentance. But it hardened their hearts and angered them. Notice what the the end of the chapter says in verses 53 and 54. And as he said these things unto them, they all fell on their knees in repentance and tore their garments in sackcloth and ashes and said, you're right, Jesus. It's not what the text says. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak many things, laying in wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. This is what people do when they lose an argument. When they lose an argument, they seek to twist words and, and twist arguments to, to take, the, to take your, your mind off of and to take other people's minds off of just how badly they lost and turn it on to other things. Or they start to attack the person, right? It's called ad hominem. They, they, they can't win the argument, so they attack the person. They were looking for a way to attack Jesus. They didn't have it, so they were looking for ways to, to, to trip him up. This is what happens when you lose an argument. So Jesus, of course, did not give in to the opportunity. Their response validated everything that Jesus was saying about their evil hearts. Everything that he had just said about them, all those woes, they don't believe it. Well, their response validated it, right? Their response validated that just as the prophets had been killed by their fathers, so too they would have been killed by these men who had hardened their hearts to the truth as it was proclaimed. And that brings us to our application. Let's apply this evening. Three points in our application. Point number one. Religion is not a source of righteousness. It's an outlet for righteousness. Religion is not a source of righteousness. It is an outlet for righteousness. We mentioned in our introduction that we don't necessarily have a religion, but rather we have a relationship with God the Father through our Son Jesus Christ, through His Son Jesus Christ. As such, religion is not the source of our righteousness. It is a framework which helps us live out the relationship that we have with Christ. But as I've mentioned, the vast majority of the world, including many who would call themselves followers of Jesus, do not really live this way. The vast majority of the world defines their relationship with God by their religion, believing that their religious devotion is what earns them favor with God and so what will earn them heaven. This is true among many of the liturgical denominations, uh, Catholics, Lutherans, and such. They live under constant guilt and fear of perdition if they don't measure up to the standards placed upon them by their religious system. This is true of Muslims who live under constant guilt and fear of Allah if they do not observe prayers and feast days. By the way, this is where you get violent, suicidal Muslims because they have not done a good job of living up to the expectations of Allah and blowing themselves up as a get-out-of-jail-free card. This is true of the Jews who live under constant guilt and fear of Jehovah if they do not observe the laws and traditions of their elders. This is true of the Hindus who live under expectation of civic, moral, and traditional duties in order to earn honor in a reincarnated life. This is true of the cults, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, among others, who rely upon the external rights of righteousness in order to earn them favor with an angry God. And this is true of every system not called biblical Christianity. For biblical Christianity is the only religion in existence which does not source a man's righteousness and a man's favor with God upon his own good deeds but rather the deeds of another, that being Jesus Christ. Consequently, may I say, biblical Christianity is the only religion whose God is truly just. Because only in biblical Christianity is God able to satisfy His justice and still give mercy. In every other religious system, wherever God allows someone into heaven, it's because He has overlooked their sin. 
It's because their good has outweighed their bad, and so their bad doesn't matter anymore. That's not justice. If you go to any judge in this country, well, maybe not anymore, but if you go to many judges in this country, and you were to say, okay, if I were to do this wrong deed, if I were to live a perfect civic life, not even a speeding ticket for 40 years, and then I were to go and steal a bunch of televisions, would those 40 years of goodness outweigh the stealing of the television so that you wouldn't punish me? The judge would say, of course not. The punishment is for the crime, not for the good you've done, but for the bad that you've done. Right? That's what a just judge has to do. Biblical Christianity is the only framework, theological framework, where God is just, he can be just and merciful. Because in all the other ones, you pay for your own sin and you get out of it if you've done enough good things. God just overlooks it. God did not overlook your sin or my sin, did he? He did not overlook it. He has not overlooked it. He will not overlook it. He poured it out on Christ. Christ bore your sin. It has been paid for and it it was a high price. It was the highest price. The life of the word of God made flesh. So that God can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. What we read about in Romans 3 this morning. That's what the Bible tells us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is what the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he hath made him sin for us, who knew no, made him to be sin for us, excuse me, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Bible tells me I'm a sinner, that because I'm a sinner, I'm condemned to an eternal separation from God and a punishment in the lake of fire. The Bible tells me that a just God cannot just overlook my sin, that it doesn't matter how many good things I do, the bad things still have to be paid for. That's what justice is. That's what justice means. My evil deeds have separated me from God and they cannot just be overlooked. Or God is not just. Or God is not holy. This means I cannot earn my way back to favor by doing enough good things because I've already done bad things. Someone's got to pay for it. But the Bible tells me I don't have to because Jesus did it already. That God laid my punishment on him. That Jesus bore the wrath. He bore the shame. He satisfied God's justice so that I might be the recipient of God's mercy. And if I believe this with all my heart, the Bible tells us that Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried, that he rose again so that he is worthy to give me eternal life, then I'll be saved. Now it's after this point, it's after that salvation that religion begins to matter. These things ought ye to have done and not to have left the others undone. Get right with God first, clean the inside of the cup, now let's t- t- let, let, now let's let's bring in a framework that allows us to clean the outside of the cup as well. Keep the outside clean. That's what religion does to us. So baptism is the public profession of my faith. So religious Bible reading helps me draw closer to God and learn His will. So religious times of prayer strengthens my faith, establishes my peace, gives me a direct link to the heart of God. So religious church attendance strengthens my faith for the days ahead, sharpens me through the edification of the saints, the accountability of God's people one toward another, allows me to join in in the fellowship of the Lord's table as God commands, gives me a means by which to sharpen others as iron sharp iron. Religious sharing of my faith reminds me of the power of the gospel, brings others into the family of God that I might fulfill that commission. Religious guarding of my heart from evils by setting up proper standards in my life to keep my heart with all diligence. To make sure that whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are of a good report, I think I skipped one, whatever, if there be any praise, if there be any virtue, think on these things. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. That framework that I put up religiously in my life to protect me from those things, to keep the outside of the cup clean. It's all motivated, though, by a clean inside cup. It has to be. All of these religious outworkings are the outworkings of a relationship that I have already formulated, of a love that I already possess for my God who took my sin and placed it on my Savior. For a God who has justified me through the just one. That's why. 
That's what religion is about. That's what it's for. None of these activities define my relationship with Christ. These activities work out my relationship with Christ. I do them because of the relationship that's already established. Excuse me, I'm not quite ready for point two yet. I don't do religious things because I'm trying to measure up to God's standard. Jesus already did that for me. I do religious things because Christ has clothed me in his righteousness so that I and him already measure up and now I can align myself with God by aligning the religion in my life to keep me close, to please him. So take note then that religion is a good thing in its proper place, but dangerous out of its proper place. Unfortunately, even among Bible believers, born-again believers, this is not always how we live. And this brings us to our second point. Religion is not a weapon. It is a tool. The Pharisees sought to weaponize religion, didn't they? They sought to weaponize religion, using it to establish their position in society, putting themselves up, putting everyone else down, but also seeking to keep everyone else in line. And while we see this used in many false religions around the world, unfortunately, we see it used far too often in our churches as well and in our families. That we use religion to threaten people, to threaten children to get them to behave, to threaten our church members to get them to align, to conform, to do what we want them to do. God forbid that we should use religious the outworking of a relationship with Jesus Christ, the framework within which we are we operate in order to stay close to Him, God forbid that we should use it as a weapon to threaten people, to guilt people, to shame people. But it happens, doesn't it? It ought not, it dare not happen among we who are called those in Christ. What is true religion? James defines true religion in James one twenty seven. True religion, pure religion, and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. This is why religion exists. Religion exists for two reasons, according to the word of God. First, it's not to keep us awake at night wondering if we're doing right. True Pure religion is not to keep us awake at night in guilt. Pure religion does not exist to operate in guilt and fear and shame. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Number one, to give us a framework within which to help the innocent. Number two, to give us a framework within which to stay pure before God. Not a weapon to cause people to act a certain way, but a tool used to minister to the innocent and needy and a tool used to keep us from sin. That is what religion exists to do. Religion is a good thing in its proper place when it's used as a tool. Religion is evil when it's used as a weapon. It is evil when it's used as a weapon. Religion is designed to give us an outlet for our righteousness in Christ. And as God's people, this is what we need to understand. Religion does not establish our relationship or our righteousness. It enables our righteousness to shine. Religion doesn't form the standard for our relationship with God. It is It allows my relationship with God to blossom. It is the fence around the garden so that the weeds and the care and the, and the, and the rabbits and, and the birds and the deer can't get in and eat at it. It is our protection. It is our framework. It is our guide. It is a tool. We dare not make it a weapon. The vast majority, the vast amount of our time in our own Christian lives, in the lives of those who we guide to Christ, then, should not be spent on any sort of guilt or shame in regard to religion. You know, religion is the outside of the cup. When you are living your Christian life, when you are doing the Christian things you do, the the religious things that we do, that's the outside of the cup. And those outside things will find their place if the inside of the cup is clean. 
And that leads us to our third point. Pure religion is an outward manifestation of an inward devotion. When we think of religion, we might relate it to the concept of devotion. But if we regard James's definition of pure religion with clarity and with focus, we understand that the essence of religion is not found in doing. The essence of religion is found in desiring. Pure religion is not as much about what we do as about our motivation to do it. Pure religion is not as much about actions as it is motives. Pure religion is a means of working out our love for God in tangible and external ways. Religion can be motivated by any number of internal or external factors, can't it? It can be motivated by pride. It can be motivated by self-righteousness. It can be motivated by fear. It can be motivated by compulsion. It can be motivated by reward. But pure religion is motivated by love. Love for God. Consequently, you cannot always judge the inside of a cup by its externals. And that goes both ways. You cannot necessarily judge the inside of a cup because a person doesn't hold to your standards. You cannot necessarily judge the inside of a cup because a person is not of your religious framework. Because it is a framework that is an outworking. Now, we minister... We, we worship in spirit and in truth. When they, when, when, when someone steps over a line, right? You cannot, I, I can look at, at the Muslim and I can, I can judge the inside of that cup as far as salvation is concerned. Because they're, they're not, they don't believe in Jesus Christ into salvation. I'm talking about within the religious framework of our circles. You gotta be careful not to always judge the outside, uh, the inside of the cup by the outside. And that the other way as well. Just because I can put on a suit on a Sunday and shine my shoes and then come with my Bible in, under my arm does not mean the inside of the cup is clean. It doesn't. And we need to know that. Pure religion is our highest goal. Actions in our lives of faithfulness and devotion driven by selfless love for one who is greater than we. A heart so yearning to know God. A heart so yearning to be close to God. A heart so desirous to serve God that your heart is bursting at the seams to find physical and tangible ways to express your love. And religion is the way to do that. I love God so much, I dare not not spend time with Him. Oh, there's my double negative again. I dare not not spend time with Him in the morning. Right? In Bible reading and prayer. I love God so much, I just want to be around God's people. Let's go to church. I love God so much, I want to set aside the things that I'm doing on any given night to go do what the church is doing for the community. These are outworkings of something. It shouldn't be motivated by guilt or shame or fear. But an outworking of your desire to love God and to know Him more. That is what motivates our religious devotion. And if that's not what's motivating your religious devotion, may I encourage you to take a look at the inside of your cup? Now, I'm not saying tonight that if, if you struggle with some of these motivations that you're a Pharisee, that your, the inside of your cup is wickedness and ravening. But is there, is there a taint in the cup? Is there a, a, a little bit, is maybe one of those seams at the bottom of the cup have a little bit of gunk in it that needs to be cleaned out? Because religion is not intended to begin with our outward motions, nor to do the outward motions. The religious elements in themselves are meant to follow your heart, where your heart goes. But it's so easy for us to keep the outward when the inward crumbles, or when the inward weakens, or when the inward is not what it ought to be. And we need to be careful about that. When your heart is where it ought to be, it will attest to that fact through pure religion. So my question is simply this. How is the inside of the cup this evening for you? How's the inside of the cup doing? I see here, the outside of the cup is looking pretty good. Looking pretty good this evening. We're here. We've sung our hymns. We've stood. We've sat. We've read our Bibles. We've read our King James Bibles. We've done all of these things, right? The outside of the cup is looking pretty good. How's the inside of the cup looking this evening? Are you in any way like one of those Pharisees, scribes, lawyers, Sadducees? That the outward is clean, but the inward is a mess? 
Do you recoil more when somebody offends one of your standards than, than when somebody offends the word of God? Can you be living outside of the word of God, truly sinning in your heart before God while recoiling at somebody's offense of your standards? There might be something wrong with the inside of your cup. Do you have religion down but have fallen short of the weightier matters of the law? The weightier matters of God's desire for you to live justice, mercy, and humility? Do you serve for praise or for the perception of men rather than for love and obedience to God? Are you a hidden grave, a buried grave, where people interact with you and come out unknowingly more defiled than when they, than before they interacted with you? Have you given up on religion? Have you gone the other way? You've given up on religion altogether because it's hurt you, it's hurt others. And you see tonight that pure religion is not just good, but pure religion is the highest ideal of the, Christ, of the biblical Christian outworking of life. God help us to avoid religious evil, but God help us not to throw out religious good, religious virtue, because of the evil that it can do. Let's close in prayer.